Welcome to Beer and a Movie, a podcast where we combine two of the greatest art forms known to humanity. You guessed it, beer and movies, sometimes achieving outstanding pairings and other times giving ourselves to the opportunity to watch the terrible taste of failure from our mouths. I am one of three. My name is Joe Hilliard, along with, always, Dave Gurney and Carlos Cooper. And we are here to conclude, to wrap up the fourth of four October all-horror episodes but let's, Carlos, I, I couldn't be more amazed at the pairings of beers this evening. Please get our glass moistened ASAP. Uh, yeah, came through at the, um, the final hour right at the deadline for October. <laughs> um, and a buddy of mine, Nathan, I, uh, friend of me, I don't know if he's a friend of the show. I don't think, <laughs> I don't, I don't think he actually listens, but, uh, but yeah, so he hit me up, shot me a, a text, and was like, yo, look at this. And there was this uh, shop in Austin that got uh, a, a series of ingenious beers that we really wanted to have on the show for October, but weren't sure how we were going to get, because we don't live in Houston, and we don't have a solid mule for Houston <laughs> uh, but thankfully he just so happened to be coming down to visit his parents uh so i was able to get this delivered just in time uh so this ev- every year in genius or at least for the last they've only been a brewery for like two and a half years um but for the last two years they've done a um like a halloween cereal you know we- oh, we've all seen the halloween cereals in the in the grocery store they do like a halloween cereal series of beers uh, there's like five different ones each year. Um, so we are, that's all we're doing this episode is those beers and for the after hours episode. And we're kicking it off with their Boo Berry Fluff. Now this one yes. right here is a tart Berliner jam packed with enough blueberries and cereal marshmallows to scare away crispy boys in bed sheets. It comes in at 6.8 alcohol uh, by volume. This is the lightest beer we will be uh, drinking tonight. So this is a tart Berliner, and I mean it, it's another sour. We have done more sours in the last, I feel, four or five months than we had the previous time on the show. And I'm I'm enjoying the journey, to be honest with you, David. This beer is gorgeous to look at in the glass. It is, yeah. As I was pouring it, I was I was kind of uh, amazed by the beautiful dark, you know, purplish blue. I guess that's right. Um, color that we're getting. I mean, it, it's it is. It's just it's a it's a pleasure to see it in the glass. Look and I was getting right the blueberry aroma. Yeah, ooh. Look at that DGM. <laughs> My glass is dirty AF. Oh come on! I'm also oh. breaking in a a hybrid records pint glass that one of our customers made for me. He made one for me and one for Josh. Uh, it's like etched in. You can't really see it right now because the beer is dark, but. I want to talk about this movie, but before I do, Carlos, I don't think we've ever mentioned the Hybrid Record Club. And people, (laughs) this episode brought to you by people should should Google that. Uh, Yeah, if you want to, if that's your thing, the you know, 
Maybe we'll do a soundtrack someday and it'll make sense for this ad to tie in to this. I was not, I was not looking forward to watching the movie that we were going to watch. It had the mark that we were going to discuss rather. It had the markings of everything I don't like. And I can get into that if you want me to, uh, after David, maybe you can tell us what movie are we starting with? How did this come to be? Sure. Uh, so, so this was actually a film that had escaped me. Um, I, I wasn't even aware of it, but Carlos had brought this up when we were discussing different films that we might do in this month of uh, horror films in October. And this is the 2017 film, The Babysitter, which was a Netflix uh, production, or at least it was released by them. It was it was made by McGee, uh, the director who is... Of Charlie's, most, of, of Charlie's Angels fame. Right, I was going to say, probably best known uh, to, to audiences as being the guy who brought Charlie's Angels to the big screen back in, well, that was around 2000. Um, but it's gone on to continue making, you know, kind of fun action and, uh, and, and other fare. But here, kind of dipping into horror with this film that takes the kind of classic babysitter trope of horror and flips it on its head a little bit because it isn't the babysitter who's in peril here. It is the babysitter who is perhaps the source of peril when uh, she is revealed to be uh, involved in a satanic cult. Uh, A blood cult. A blood cult. Okay. And that's, you know, that, that's about as much as I probably need to do for plot synopsis here. Um, You know, we, we have some, some minor stars. I mean, actually, since this film came out, I feel like, uh, and I'm still not happy with how I say her name, <laughs> even though we've had her in several films. She was in Bill and Ted's. Uh, when one of, we one that. of my faves at this point, I feel. Yeah, and she was in uh, Ready or Not, Ready, which yeah. we all love. Uh, Samara Weaving? Samara or Samara? Samara? I'm going to go Samara. I know Samara. The thing that trips me up is I knew I, I met a, a Tamra. And she spells her name the same way, but with a T. Uh, and she was insistent that it was Tamara, not Tamara or Tamara or, you know. So it got drilled into me that this, when I see this spelling, it is Tamara, not Tamara. And so I, I keep wanting to say Samra, but I'm, I feel like she's probably Samara or, or Samara. We'll have to actually find, we'll look it up. I know, right? We'll prepare I, properly. Yeah, absolutely. So, I, so David... She appeared two years later in Ready or Not, and I think right. that's that's kind of important because this movie came out prior to a movie yes. Yes. that we all, I mean, to my recollection, we all enjoyed very much. Absolutely, Ready or Not, yep. yeah, I loved Ready or Not, and and she, the bride, the the kickass bride, uh-huh. uh, you know, carried that movie, and you know, to me. She carries this movie. She is a magnetic presence in both of those films. So to yeah. see that she had done this two years prior for for McGee in the style of films that he inten- that he tends to create, I think this is his first go into the horror field. I think. I think so. Yeah. I think so. So uh, you know, and so I like. I said I wasn't looking forward to seeing this movie because it just has all of the earmarks by its poster and 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 trailer as a thing on netflix that i would purposefully pass over (laughs) you you don't like like fun you don't like thrills and chills i don't like really cheaply made horror and that was the assumption that i was making that they had that they had sprung some money on like a bella thorne casting you know and you know whatever but uh 
You know, and Robbie Amell? A week ago. Chris Wilde, Ken Marino, Leslie Bibb. These aren't names. <laughs> Ken Marino <laughs> is like an, well, a no, name-ish. I, no, he he. Okay, so you're talking about the dad for a few thousand dollars. You're not you're not talking about. He, he doesn't command a salary. I mean, no. I love Ken Reno, and in fact, w- w- let's go ahead and spoil it. One of the things I love about the second installment in this is that we get a lot more Ken Marino. A lot more Ken but, Marino. Because so, but, so David, the only plot point that I say you left out would be that the um, babysitter turns on her. Uh, what would you call the person that she's babysitting? A twelve-year-old boy who has a well, uh, probably fourteen at least. He's a freshman in in high school, but yeah, the, the, young teen, young teen. Oh, sure. Uh, who um, who who has to kill a crew of people in this satanic cult, and that that is the film. The uh, the, the the picking off one by one of people that that mean him harm. Yeah, the right. kid trying to survive think, the night. Yeah, and that's an important, I think, piece of the plot. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I guess to me, the the key piece here, and and what uh, once I became aware of the film, once Carlos kind of said, "Oh, let's look at this," and I looked at it, I'm like, "Oh, I see what it's doing. It is flipping the typical script on. Usually, it's the babysitter who is in an unfamiliar house who's dealing with and is getting these strange call. You know." Halloween, uh, so many other horror films that have used that trope. And here we've just flipped it. And instead of the threat coming from outside and the babysitter being the vulnerable one, it is the babysitter herself who is bringing the threat to the house. And yes, you're exactly right. It is because it is a blood cult. It's all the members of her little cult, whatever you call coven, or I guess that's witches. But whatever this little crew that she has is that's trying to do this ritual um, and you're right. And so then uh, young Cole, the, the boy who's being babysat, has to find ways to overcome all of these cold members. And we, we picked the film because we were looking for a new release. And the sequel, which we'll also talk about, Babysitter or Killer Queen, came out like a month ago. You know, right. so you you have to go back and see the first one in order to, to really be able to talk about the second one. We're not trying to to discuss i think a piece of 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 canon in the fil- in the horror film history what they're doing here and now that netflix is the distributor is making a franchise making a franchise if they that if they can do it for this budget then netflix will have a second hit because this first movie was a big hit but there's a lot of quality in this movie, and while my expectations were super low, I enjoyed this movie very, very much. Yeah, this movie is incredible. Like, it is so good. And like, and I so okay. So here's here's my thing. I was I was thinking about this earlier today, because um, I woke up at like I don't know like five thirty this morning and watched Babysitter Two. I had watched most of Babysitter 1 Saturday night, I believe, and then I re-watched the last half of that this morning as well. Um, But after I had done that, and I was thinking, there is so little in the way of this particular brand of horror, like the like supernatural shit like the Poltergeist, Exorcist, Michael, Jason, Freddy, like all of these kinds of things are not going to scare an audience anymore. Like, it's just, we've, we, we've seen it, 
We know the tropes. We know the formulas. We know how it plays out. Even if you try to subvert those things, you're still operating within a language and a certain vocabulary of horror that has come before. And so we still are kind of in on it, even if you're trying to subvert it. So if you want to play within this slasher genre, taking it super earnestly and trying to legitimately scare audiences is... It's, it's futile. You're setting yourself up for failure. Like, it's not going to work that way. And people are still probably, even if you're trying to take it super seriously, find something kind of funny or, like, uh, cheesy or whatever in it. And so it, the only way I feel that, or the only type of slasher movie I want to see in 2020 is, like, a horror comedy, ridiculous, like, let's play it up. Let's go, let's get super over the top. Let's, like just like play into all of the tropes and stereotypes, take them to like their most ridiculous conclusions. And this movie, like I think does that really well. It, it, and it, but it, you know, the way that cabin in the woods so brilliantly handled the slasher cabin in the woods genre is it, you know, took all those things you knew and kind of twisted it a little bit to keep it kind of fresh. This movie, as you guys have said, also does that. It's not that it, you know, is just trying to repeat what has already been done and just make it more violent and silly, it is still kind of playing with the ideas, but not in a way that we're supposed to be like really like truly trembling in our seats and like, you know, waking up in the middle of the night with nightmares or anything like that. And so it is exciting, it's entertaining, it has an amazing soundtrack, uh, which only gets better in the second one, spoiler alert. Uh, it gives you some really intense, like super creative kill scenes, like, when I the first time I watched this movie, it was last year, so it was like I was even two years late to it. And my friend David just casually brought it up in conversation. Uh, David the dentist, not the David on this podcast, um, casually brought it up in conversation, just assuming that I had seen it and was like, "Oh yeah, I watched the Babysitter again the other night." And I was like, "Oh man, I never saw that." And he was like, "What? Seriously? I thought you had blah blah." And so I immediately was like, "Kylie, we got to watch this," because it was October too, so it was spooky season, so it was the time. And as soon as John dies and he gets impaled by that trophy like through his neck or whatever. I was like, oh fuck, like this is it. Like we are in it. Like this movie's gonna be crazy. If this is how they started, like killing off the like members of the cult, if this is the first one, it's only gonna like ratchet up from here. And <laughs> it's had just the, like a crazy had, had the cops had the cops shown up but at that point, I can't remember. No. Yeah. They had, they had. It's, they had. So you'd that, already seen yeah. two also wacky kills. Yeah. But I I think Well I think, let's I think, not even jump past the stabbing the guy in, in the, the eye. Head. Well no, in the in the top of the head with two swords. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean that's I mean that too. And but I I think I think the reason that one like really got me to believe is that, okay, this is one of the core, like, big bads, you know? Like, this is part of the core group of evildoers that is being sent off in such a spectacular fact. I, you know, I feel like if it had just been, like, the the Satanists doing crazy stuff, like, that makes sense. But the fact that Cole was able to dispatch one of them in equally as spectacular a fashion as a 12-year-old, then I was like, okay, so we are not buying into this kid being, like, small and weak and, like, unable to actually get shit done. Like, we are just like, fuck it. Like, yeah, why, why wouldn't he be able to do this? Let's go. Who cares, you know? And it's just, like, a super fun, entertaining romp of a film that I will tell you, as somebody who has seen it multiple times, has 
has rewatch value. It's it's like I and I think that it has the potential and should be if you know uh, Netflix plays its cards right. Be maybe a franchise, but at least a film that garners some kind of cult audience or attention or whatever. I don't know. I I really enjoyed it, which is why you know. When we were talking about, oh, what are we gonna do for newer films? I was like, we need to do this one. Like, this is this is the fucking one right here that we should be talking about, especially with Killer Queen having just released. Yeah, I, I mean, I enjoyed this film. I, I'm not, I'm not gonna, uh, you know, rain on the parade here. I do, I do think that. I mean, maybe because you're you're advocating so vehemently for it, I feel a little bit like I need to bring people's expectations down just a couple notches. Like, I think this is a smart and fun film if you're willing to go with it where it wants to go, which is into this, like, sort of horror-comedy hybrid. Now, it isn't really the horror-parody kind of hybrid that, like, A Scream is or even Cabin in the Woods. Um, which I appreciate. It's not just—it's not just playing with the idea that the characters know what's coming. They—they don't—they don't talk about that so much. Um, The—you know—I I also don't think that we've totally gotten past where somebody can't do a fresh take on the slasher film that's a little more serious I and could actually scare people. I think we'll see that. I think there's enough creativity and innovation out there that eventually we'll see somebody like a Robert Eggers come along, not Robert Eggers, but somebody like him come along and want to do something with the slasher subgenre or, or even the satanic cult film that has a darker sort of, uh, you know, more serious, more sinister, scary vibe to it. But for what this is, it's a very entertaining film. Um, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you about the soundtrack. I think I think there's some some good nuggets in there, um, both in terms of score, but also the selection of some of the popular music. You know, using Roy Ayers in here that that was yeah. a nice little surprise. Um, that one, one of my faves of his, um, and it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was just there's some. It, it really is at least this first one kind of like a mashup between the goofy coming of age high school comedy and the you know satanic cult horror film that's you know that that that's how i saw it that was the realm it was in i think samra weaving is incredibly charming we've already established that she's she's captivating i think most of the rest of the cast is really good if there is a weak link there i honestly think it's probably the kid judah lewis okay Um, i I, I won't disagree with that i didn't think i I think he got better and i'm let's stop let's drop the pretense of we're gonna like start a new review let's just talk about how these films kind of move into each other yeah because that hold hold on david before i think he i'm gonna go ahead and say it joe you can talk later (laughs) but no what i'm saying is i think he got better he looks older too i mean there there is quite a, a difference like he could play something that was maybe 12-ish, 13-ish in that first film, but there was no way they were going to be able to pass him off, you know, as anything younger than whatever. So 16, yeah. Yeah, so so I think that, you know, he, he got better with that second film, and that helps the second film, and it relies on him more yeah. anyway. So, so I think that the evolution there, if he was a weak link in the first one, not as much of a problem in the second. And sorry, Joe, go ahead. No, I thought you were about to move into the second film, and before we did, I did want to say a couple more things about just this first one. Okay. Um, you, you've got... I really enjoyed the acting in this movie of the principal characters. I'm talking Cole, the, the boy. I looked it up. He's supposed to be 12 in this movie. 
uh, be the babysitter and Melanie the more age-appropriate love interest across the street, right? Yeah. The, uh, and to a slightly lesser degree, the parents and their interactions. I thought we were seeing good acting. You know, I mean, like good acting and good relationships. I loved the gore in this movie. I loved it. Oh, and yeah, the movie, it's crazy. And the movie, when they pitched it to whomever, and the, or the script was, we're going to fill it full of cultural references. These are kids that are pop culture smart. They're going to trade pop culture quips. We're going to have a lot of gore, and it's going to be funny. Like, that was, you know, that's the pitch, right? Mm -hmm. But my favorite part of it, and David, you mentioned it, is this coming-of-age thing. The way that, like, and I've told you many times on the show, I'm a sucker for a great coming-of-age movie. And that's when people that are way too young for the responsibility of it are responsible for saving the day. And we're not talking high school kids. This kid is 12. Like uh, like Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween or the camp counselors in Friday the Thirteenth, they're high schoolers. We're to assume. Yeah, I'm talking. I'm talking Home Alone. I'm talking Goonies. But like in the horror, I was trying to think what are some the kids save the day horror movies, and I really only quickly came up with Lost Boys and um, the the Monster Squad. But so so that the her- heroism is not left up to the uh, the young adults or adults. It's left up to kids, and I love it when that's pulled off well, and I think it's really pulled off well here. I disagree with you, David. I think that the, 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 the Cole, the lead, is better in this movie than he is the second one. I loved him in this movie. I thought he was great and found him less likable in the second movie, which I guess we'll talk about. Then, you got, then you've got Mick G, right? You've got to tolerate his, you know, the smash mouth of cinema. Like oh, that is so bold. Like those title cards, I didn't care for those oh, at all. So good. No, they're they're they're. It fits the tone they, of the it, film. It's, it's it's hitting you over the head with style. It's not. It's 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 desirous of comedy, but there's no comedy delivered. Well, but there, but the the whole film, it's nothing but style. Like there's there is to a certain degree, and I think that I will say I think you guys are kind of grasping a little bit at this coming of age story. I mean, it is there, but it's definitely not something that is focused on. And I. I think it's putting a lot of faith in Mick G to say that it was something he was really trying to hone in on. I think that this movie the, is flash. The protagonist of the film is a 12 year old. How can you possibly be right? Well, because I don't, because I don't think the film is about Cole growing or changing that much. Yeah, no, it's a coming of age. It's him attaining. I mean, he, yeah, he ends the film saying, "I don't need a babysitter anymore." Right? Well, yeah, like, but that's because he just ran the babysitter yes, over the car. No, it's, I mean, it is making no, his, it. It is blowing up the idea. Like, okay, you have coming of age films, which tend to be people coming to terms with maturity Book in smart, ways like either grade. dealing with death or sexuality or whatever here it's being confronted by a satanic cult it's making a a joke out of it in a way i mean it's making comedy out of it but it's using the the foundation of the idea of a coming of age story i I just think that's very generous yeah well no the movie begins with the first 20 or 30 minutes of the film is him like getting beat up and him you know like not being a a misfit and not really fitting in and not knowing his place and no his mom his his mom understands him as the babysitter and yeah his mom says out loud you're the you're anxious and you worry so much and you are over you know now that could be the projection of of the parents and why they are 
you know, the whole point is he doesn't need a babysitter. He's playing a 12 year old. I'm getting a babysitter if I'm leaving the, for the weekend with my, with my 12 year old. I just think uh, that, I just think that most of that stuff is really just set up for how true of an underdog status he occupies trying to face and defeat a satanic cult. I think it's more about setting that struggle up than it is about actually like this kid growing up and like, you know, I, I just, in my first viewing of this film, I did not think very hard, nor did I think the hmm. film was trying to say very much about the, the character arc of Cole. I think that, I think that the, the most depth that we get in that arc is that he survives and is able to kind of, uh, be a little less well, scared I, I, and sheltered and be able to get through a satanic cult trying to kill him. Uh, I think that the second one is more about his character developing. But my, but my, ori my original point was I like it when kids uh, super eight, I like it when kids can be the subject of the fun, right? I, that no, was, I, and, and I, agree that with was that. my larger point. Stranger things or die, right? Joe? Oh, sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. So my, my, my least favorite thing of the movie and, and now you've already brought up cabin in the woods. I, there has to be some kind of Joe Hilliard block against exaggerated banter of caricatures of high school in a horror film. Oh my god, the, it's so good. The, the, the length to which the characters have to live up to the character, the, the caricature yeah. that they're playing. I, 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 that bothers me. And Bella Thorne, I, I just don't care for her. I don't, I don't care for her either and for, a, for many reasons other than just her on-screen presence. And I think that I think that... that criticism is much more valid in the context of the babysitter than it is in cabin in the woods because in cabin in the woods it is explicitly the point to exaggerate those stereotypes like that film like especially once you get to the ending it is so clear that they are that's the entire point of those characters is to be the most concentrated version of those stereotypes possible and the film relies on that in a certain way uh, in this one it relies on that a little bit for just like jokes and fun and like making it easy to kill these people off without the audience getting too like emotionally attached to them because they are so cartoonish um but i i don't know i think i think that it's fucking hilarious that Robbie Amell is not wearing a shirt and there's absolutely no reason for it and I think it only gets funnier in the second one when he just full on shows up without a shirt on and just doesn't put one on for the rest of the film like I think that those things are funny uh, I don't need David, them to David, make I, sense I don't need them to be substantial in any way I just need a good bit David I almost didn't bring up Kevin in the Woods I was nervous to do it it had already been brought up, so so you you didn't you didn't really break the seal there. Uh, yeah, you know, I don't want to get into comparisons. I I actually I think I, I appreciate the babysitter's take on it a little bit more. I do I did think that the Max character, the Robbie Amell one, I thought was pretty funny. I I did get a kick out of how he kept it kept getting remarked upon that he wasn't wearing a shirt. Why aren't you wearing a shirt? You know, I thought that was funny. I. I don't hate or love Bella Thorne. I think I'm kind of Bella Thorne neutral. Honestly, I don't think I've really seen her in that much else. Well, what else have I seen her in? Um, she's 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 a very problematic like person outside. Okay, of see, I I don't know her persona outside this film or like I said. Um, you don't follow her on Instagram, David? Come on. Shoot, I get I'll add her to my my follow list. <laughs> um, 
I think, uh, but I, th- I thought the gag about her getting shot in her breast and, and that this was going to ruin her life. I mean, I thought it was it was very funny and, and, and very silly. I don't know. So I got, I got some good laughs out of the characters, the caricatures of characters that there were. I thought, like I said, Sam Weaving was a nice, uh, like, sort of grounding point there. I thought Ken Marino and Leslie Bibb as the parents were fun. I don't think there was anything like... I don't know, deep or relatable about their relationship, but it was it was funny enough, and their their pleasant on screen presences. I mean, I think this is a very good popcorn horror comedy that smooth I would brain. say any and yeah, smooth brain. If I anybody agree. is is at home in October and is feeling like yeah, we should watch a horror movie, but I don't want it to be too heavy. This this would be one that sure. I would absolutely steer anybody towards. And and on top of that, you know, I think. You, you guys said the gore was done well. The gore is part of the comedy. I mean, it's like somebody gets hit and like a ridiculous, I mean, like a fountain of blood yeah. splatters all over. The, I mean, they're literally sort of, like pouring blood out of this guy's skull, basically like a fucking right. tap, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's it's intense, but at the same time, it's part of the comedy. So they, there's, I, I think, uh, a, a lot to be said there. For okay. And when, so, and when, Net, when Netflix released it, it was a huge hit. So it only made sense, I suppose, that uh, a sequel was soon to follow straight to netflix netflix took the the franchise over if i understand it correctly yeah which makes sense for them and sure and, and mcg has even gone on record saying that he would love to do a third one if audiences want to so see I, it wait i i didn't even realize did the first one get a theatrical release i don't think so no Not i'm just saying it was a huge hit on netflix Okay. All right. All right. I but just, that, but I think I think Joe's over. I, I I I was misunderstanding. I thought you meant like they had found this theatrical release no, that they no, wanted to put the franchise no. but, out of. Okay. But I don't think that Netflix was part of like the actual production of it. I think it was a film no. that was produced oh, that Netflix picked up for distro. So, and so now right. they're like, okay, now we'll we'll just right. keep giving you money for these. And McG, yeah, okay. at least for the second one, McG is now saying that. Uh, he'll do a third one if fans are interested in seeing it, or if but that he wants to do a third one and keep the thing going. But you know, we should get into the second one. Let's um, do it. The second one is basically the same film, more or less. It it uh, makes no sense that it's two years later, uh, even though Cole goes from being twelve to at least sixteen. Um, but that's neither here nor there, really. Uh, but the same characters come back and reprise their roles in Cole and. Um, What's her name? Something with an M. Melanie. Melanie. Uh, Chris Wilde is back as Melanie's dad, Juan, which, you know, that's a little problematic in and of itself, but we'll give it a slide because, you know, what can you do about it now? Ken Marino and Leslie Bibb are back. Um, Unfortunately, Samara Weaving, spoiler alert, not in this one as much, but the other cast of nefarious Satanists come back, along with a new cult that is led by Melanie this time. A really right. great like moment of tension where, uh, you know, she slips up and Cole recognizes that she talks about the Devil's Book even though he never mentioned it to her, and he starts kind of putting the pieces together, and then she just rips Bam Bam or Boom Boom's like throat boom out, boom. boom with a uh, like a fisherman's hook, a la I know what you did last summer. And then Cole's like, oh, fuck, not again. And then all the people start showing up. Max shows back up. John shows back up. Sonia shows back up. Allison shows right. back up. The whole crew, uh, except for B. And um, and then and, and, and so then here we go. We're running it back. But this time there's this girl, Phoebe, who's new at school, who kind of is in the mix, like a little tangentially at first, but becomes a little more aligned with Cole and trying to survive the night. Um, more ridiculous kind of, uh, kind of predicaments. 
that they're in. I guess you're doubling up the deaths now because there's basically two satanic cults in play, uh, the new one and then the old one returning. Um, the, and, the next generation. Yeah, the yeah, and then and you know. Again, incredible soundtrack. You get Hocus Pocus in there. Uh, you get a great boat chase scene uh, soundtracked to Police Truck by the Dead Kennedys, which is like one of my oh my god! As soon as as soon as the da na 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 da na na yeah. came in, and they're like, I was like, fuck yes, let's go! I was so hyped <laughs> when that shit happened. I love that song so much, and it didn't make any sense necessarily, like from no. a lyrical standpoint in that no. uh, in that scene, but from a tonal like just vibe perspective and you know we're all about the vibes here mm-hmm. uh definitely match the vibe now i overheard joe talk about how shitty this movie was before he started recording and i am fucking incensed <laughs> by that because i think the Sorry, second one mute. is better uh, I I can go first or i can go second killer queen Carla. is the terminator 2 of the babysitter fucking oh, franchise shit. i think okay. that i think the way that terminator 2 ratchets up everything okay now we have we don't just have a terminator we have one that can turn himself into liquid silver and whatever the fuck who's even more indestructible than arnold was in the first movie we have all of the stakes being upped all of the 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 elaborate the intricacies of the kills like the ridiculousness of the of the situations uh the the fact that you know now people think that cole is crazy and he's making all this stuff up so he's being like monitored a lot more by his parents they're very concerned about him and then and they also know where he is and that you know he's run off and are trying to find him and then they get involved hence what david said about we get more ken marino in this one than we did in the past which i will agree i loved that um I just thought that this one was even more fun than the first. And that's really, as far as these movies go, I just want to have the most fun that I can in an hour and a half. And after having rewatched both of these within the last 24 hours and having seen both of them at least three times, I do think that it's not by a lot, but by a little I do like Killer Queens more and part of it might have something to do directly with that dead Kennedy song being in that scene, but you know, uh, but it's fucking good. It's so fun. And, and also Cole gets a real love interest this time. Like love that. And then spoiler alert, the fucking ritual doesn't work. Cause Cole be fucking like Cole oh did his thing. <laughs> well, at least uh, I'm glad you just named the episode. I, Dave, <laughs> Day, uh, what happened was uh, we will get our Zoom call up and then we'll go get our beer. And I put my microphone down and I didn't mute it. And Carlos overheard me having a conversation with the girls. Uh, when I was suggesting to them that they watch The Babysitter. Do you understand? I think <laughs> The Babysitter should be watched. But now there is a sequel. David, what do you think? <laughs> um, so I, I have a feeling I'm gonna I'm gonna fall somewhere in the middle here. I I oh, who would have guessed? I like it. It's good. It's a good no. It, it's a good sequel. Um, I think overall I enjoyed the first one a little better because it was getting introduced to the whole premise. The the satanic cult thing was kind of funny when it you know quote unquote came out of nowhere. 
there there was some uh, just novelty to it that isn't there the second time around. They also, you know, taking it to the lake instead of the house. I think I like the house setting. I do like the boat chase. That that's that you do get to bring that in. Um, th- there's some other things that kind of get added for that. I mean. I, th- there may almost be an evenness here because, like I say, you gain the Ken Marino time. You gain some, I feel, better acting from uh, the Judah Lewis as Cole, though Joe obviously disputes that. And I do think the soundtrack gets better because, as Carlos has already pointed out, you have Dead Kennedys. You have the Cramps. They, they come in early on. There's that great use of the Focus, Hocus Pocus song that... You know, anybody's going to know with the yodeling as, mm-hmm. as soon as you hear it, like this classic rock yodeling song that that is just so distinctive. Um, the Sugar Hill Gang's Apache. Oh, and so good. L- let it not go by unnoticed. Tangerine Dreams, Love on a Real Train from Risky Business, which is just used. I'm, that's me doing the chef's kiss for once. That like, I was so happy with because that comes as he's about to lose his virginity. I thought that was a really nice tie in there. So some good Jefferson Airplane in there too. I think yeah, right, White Rabbit. I think there is some incredible, again, good use of score here, good use of soundtrack that helps move the movie along. It has a good pace to it. I never found myself thinking, oh, this thing is dragging on. But it just it didn't feel as fresh as the first one. So it, I, I don't know. It's, it's kind of a hill to overcome there. I would say if you like the first one, go ahead and give this one a try. I would not say to somebody, expect to be wowed beyond what you were with the first one. I, I agree with the last thing you said, David. If you watched the first one, and I think everyone should, especially horror fans, then watch the second one because there it is uh, that's uh, requ- suggested for you when the first one is over. Um, there, there is an ha- there is a Carlos. You'll be glad to know there's an ha- there's a, a however at the end of what I'm about to say. All right, I can't remember. They blend together now in my mind. There was a scene. They're very similar. Where a character mentions that Godfather Two is one of the only uh, uh, three or four films sequels that outdo the original. That's in the first one because B, I think she kisses one of them and quotes the Godfather too. There is a reason why that is a truth and it is a truth. And that is because the sequel Godfather three. No, I don't sequels work under the premise that the audience believes that more is better and in God, in Godfather 2, Terminator 2, it's not that it's more, it's an expansion of the universe. It's an ex- it, it's it's the same thing done to a degree higher, but done in the same way that the first one was done that you loved. The trappings of what's the problem of sequels is what this movie is, in my opinion. I disagree because I think what you just described about Godfather 2 is what this movie does. No, I, I knew that you would as I was halfway talking about it. I didn't say I did not say it very well. This movie begins making me mad when the premise of it, and I know you're gonna say, Joe, this is not a movie where rules can apply. The movie's premise is that nobody, nobody believes that what Cole went through in the first movie happened. So that means that his parents think that he's crazy and have him on med- on uh, mood-altering medications. Which they do. The, 
the school believes that he, you know, the, the hazing of classmates because there's a crazy kid at school with us. Which they do believe. Two police officers died in that home. Nobody if, knows that for sure. No, they're gone. They well, went yeah, to but a, nobody knows they died there. Nobody, okay. they, their bodies weren't found there. They were moved and, and dumped somewhere. Their bodies might have uh, never been found. There, two police officers went to a home where a child in the home eventually drove a car through a neighbor's uh, through his own house. That's fair. so. It's likely to believe that these two police officers' disappearance slash murders are attributed to this boy, who no one believes that there was nefarious problems. This kid would minimally be locked up in some kind of juvenile justice system. Period. But he's loose in high school. Okay, we're watching a McG movie, right? Yeah, bust I, think, my, <laughs> I would, bust my I would chalk that up. Uh, yeah, I'm going to. I would chalk that up to reading way too into it. I don't know. I think I'm reading into it. The kid who stole my car, because in the we didn't really talk about it, but the na- uh, b- uh, Melanie's father loves his muscle car. It's funny. Mm-hmm. In the first movie. In the second movie, the neighbor is this neighbor's, uh, the father is this neighbor's best friend, and they smoke pot and, and, and play Xbox. Chris Wilde and, and Ken Marino smoke pot. And, and that is a... Um, totally a uh a mcg movie so we're going to ignore that i i disagree because chris wilde is the worst part of this movie and i will i I won't ignore that i will very much acknowledge that he the Juan character is by far the worst part melanie's comic relief father yeah he's terrible right i didn't think he was terrible but but unforgivable is the notion that this kid this kid that we got to know two years ago at age 12 would ever is now 16 Wear that three-piece corduroy suit in public. It tells you everything you need to know about this movie. Well, it's a tribute to Wes Anderson, the the suit. That kid can't complain about being a nerd at school and wear <laughs> that suit to school. You bullied kids in high school, didn't you? No, I, I had a lot of problems. <laughs> I had a problem with the with the, I had a problem with Melanie being the 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 in, as involved in the cult as she was. I don't buy it. Well, she it's wasn't not, that involved. What? She she kills the first person in the movie. Well, yeah, I mean, she, I mean, she, I don't think she like masterminded this whole thing. She just was presented an offer and signs a deal with the devil. I know, but to murder someone with her, <laughs> right? You know, it's like any now, Charlie's day. The, the, character. the, the, the characters are even more cartoonish. I don't buy any of them. And the single worst scene is the rattlesnake under the car. I mean, it's just dumb. I don't, I don't and, hate that scene. I, 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 I didn't care for Diego. I'll say that. Yeah, Diego is He's this the weirdo. Yeah. yeah, this weirdo character, a caricature of the next generation, yeah. where the new satanic cult is the stereotype of the nerd part of the cafeteria rather than the cool side of the cafeteria. And then the dad, David, who was level two cartoon in the first movie, is now level ten cartoon, and it's just cheap, cheap laughs. I, I don't like to pay a lot for my laughs. I don't know what you're <laughs> like. What you want expensive laughs? You're balling on no, budget, David. I, I'm I'm totally for. It, it's, listen, I have a soft spot for Ken Marino ever since the state. I found that guy just funny. I think he pulls off that kind of like bonehead slash former jock, not aware of his own. Like I just, I think he nails it. Whenever I see him, I loved him when he showed up in the. Uh, um, 
Eastbound and Down a few years back. I mean, like, so anytime he shows up, I'm happy. That hot American I, Summer to call back fun. to our last episode. Absolutely. I Guys, think, you, you like an actor and you love the soundtrack. That's not a glowing review. I well, said a lot a more positive about it than just that. This movie sucks. This movie's stupid, and this movie made me angry. <laughs> However, it, it, it was the perfect fit for this episode if we're going to talk about new releases because we have to talk about Netflix and and streaming and how it's changing horror. We have to talk about that. I don't, I don't know that this is changing horror. I mean, I th- I feel like changing really, cinema. It's changing like, cinema and it's changing th- theater going, and that's going to. Yeah, but I think you're looking in the wrong place if you're looking for that. I think if we were serious about doing a dive into what is 2020 horror on streaming platforms, I think we'd be looking at Shutter Originals. I think we'd be looking at the, a different thing. I mean, I think this is Netflix playing in horror territory a little fair bit. Fair point, David. Fair point. You know, I think it makes sense for them to be doing something that's kind of this horror comedy hybrid that can capture the teen audience and maybe some of the us old folks who maybe grew up on some of these, you know, slasher films. And, you know, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to put too much weight on this. I, I don't think either of these films are somehow markers of where horror is going. I think they are fun little pit stops on the horror pathway, and I'm glad that we got to see them. I'm glad that this was an excuse for me to watch them, uh, and I would recommend them to people who enjoy horror, but I think we'll see a lot of different developments in horror that take us in different directions than this. I mean, I would would agree. I I wouldn't say that this is changing horror. I think if we wanted to look at, like, where horror is going, then, I mean... Fucking God forbid we'd have to talk about Ari Aster. Uh, And to a much greater uh, sense of, you know, joy and wonder, Robert Eggers. Uh, If you're on our Facebook page, you're seeing 31 days of horror uh, reviews that we've done in the past. And I'm going to say the amount of horror that we've put into the show, I'm very proud of. Because I love love horror. Even if I'm the only... And, and we've done a really good job, I think, of looking at a lot of new releases. Ari Oster's a thing that we talk about on the show, but there's some really great new horror directors. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I agree. But with the ex- exception of fucking how terrible Ari Oster is. But, um, <laughs> but I, you know, I this movie, to me, isn't just... I just want to clarify my position on it. It isn't just that I liked the soundtrack and I like Ken Marino. I think... Whatever. I think that... You know, the sequel exists, so I'm already suspending disbelief that, I mean, it never even crossed my mind that, like, oh, Cole should be locked up or whatever because of the events that took place. Like, I'm just not... No one believes him. What does that really mean? Okay, but it's... But it's... It's not that's not really that important here though because what what's important is that a second movie exists he can't be in prison if the second movie exists and I think that if you want to talk about a coming of age story this is the fucking one more than the first one this is the one this is him you know accepting the fact that he's an outlier and that like he believes in himself and knows his truth and isn't going to, you know, cave to pressure when people are telling him that he should be and think the way that he's supposed to be and think it's showing him that everything that he has been conditioned to believe about love and beauty and destiny and all that kind of stuff that, you know, those things are more than just your situation. They're more than just skin deep. There's like a deep personal connection that two people can have. 
and he he and Phoebe really make sense together. Like they click, you know, like they are very similar in way more ways than he and Melanie are. But Melanie is the girl next door, like ideation. And, you know, if you want to talk about stereotypes and tropes, like that's what that is. And like there, I think that almost any young man at a certain point in time has had this idea of like the girl next door in their life that, oh, like this is, I need to be with this girl or blah, 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 blah. But really it's just, you just think that because you're programmed to think that based on, you know, whatever depictions in media and, you know, uh, toxic masculinity and stereotypical masculine things, and the and he he grows more as a person in this film than he does in the other one. And not only that, but also through his confidence in himself and his like ability to survive, which you know, I there's some metaphor and like allegory and like the way that I'm using the word survive here because he does like actually physically survive being you know, several attempts at murder, but also survives all this emotional trauma and stuff that people finally accept him for who he is and for like the truth that he has lived in his situation and his journey and like comes to terms with it at the end. And he's rocking those bangs like he's in a boy band at the end of it. He's doing his fucking thing, man. And that's like, that's way more than just, you know, thrills and chills and kills and like a good soundtrack. There's like actual character development in this film. And also, think, like, there's plenty to be read into in the in the Melanie character about, like, the pitfalls and the dangers of, of, of social media and validation through the internet and stuff like that and the links that people will go to to get this kind of superficial approval from strangers, you know? Yeah, it's this and cuties. Um, <laughs> I, I think, mean, I, yeah, I, I was, feel like... I was, I'm, I was not, just I'm, not touch, say, I'm not touching that one. I was just going to say that um, I... And with you, Carlos, we in an American society, male, three guys in the room right now, are conditioned to, you know, love that, you know, the 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 uh, neighbor. How did you how did you describe it? The girl next door. I mean, the girl next door. Thank there's you. There's literally the girl a movie called The Girl Next Door. But if you're if you have any experience like mine, that's only when the mega hot. 18 year old babysitter in Phoebe Cates' bikini tries to kill you when you learn that she's in a satanic cult. We've all been there. We've all been there. All right. But have we all been? No. Booberry. <laughs> no. A majority uh, of our listeners are not, are not familiar with this ingenious. This, this is our number one brewery on the show. Right. Right. Tonight, tonight's episode where we drink two of their beers is going to put them way in the lead of second place. It's but their, um, their slogan now is "Ales for the open-minded." Yeah, and I, and I think you if you go in with an open mind, I mean, because who the people they anger, the people they anger are the people who do not like people messing with beer. They you know oh, like it, uh, are you are you some, are you talking about somebody locally? So I would say that this German is German period laws. This is genius marketing. Those, <laughs> those um, iconic monster cereals, Count Chocula, Boo Berry, uh, Frankenberry. Uh, what was the one that was in uh, Pulp Fiction, Fruit Brute? I had never had that one. Yummy Mummy. There were yeah. five at one time. Now we're down right. to three. So the two, idea yeah, yeah. that they're marketing. Two, two of the five sold out at the brewery. There were only three that made it out. Well, I'm okay. saying that of the cereals, there are only three that are still in production. Oh, right. Okay. So the idea that they're doing this, especially around October time, Halloween time, is brilliant and wonderful. 
I'm really eager to hear how, what you guys thought of the beer, though. I enjoyed it quite a bit. It was delicious. It, it had the nice, uh, the, the blueberry was there. It had that uh, sort of pillowy mouthfeel that I wanted because of the marshmallow. Uh, I mean, I don't know. What, what else can I say? It was easy to drink. It, it was not... Um, it was not overly sweet. I think the tartness kind of brought a nice little balance to it all. I, I was very impressed. 6.8%, really easy to drink. Uh, wish I had another can. There was nothing Same. unenjoyable about it except it was a little thin for me, for what I was expecting. I don't know if I'm, if that's the right word as far as getting across the point that I'm trying to make. All of those adjuncts that I was expecting, the gorgeous presentation, it tasted incredible. It just, it, it felt like I was supposed to be drinking a 10, but I really only got a 6 or a 7 as far as just the oomph of I it all. I I do understand what you mean because ingenious they're known for viscosity in a lot of their mm -hmm, their beers mm -hmm. and, and 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 so I could see having that expectation and and the beer that we're going to get to in the bonus episode we'll talk viscosity like we'll talk hashtag thick boys three C's you know uh, so if you're not a Patreon subscriber fucking get your life together and sign up for our Patreon um, but I I am. I definitely more David on this one. I really like this beer. And I think that for me, at least, I mean, I, I do have that expectation of thickness, uh, you know, of, of, of mouthfeel from ingenious. I mean, it's what the majority of their beers have been for me over the years that I've been drinking their, their stuff. Um, but I think that just because, you know, I knew going into this one, it was a, it was a Berliner Weiss base, that that kind of brought my expectation down as far as mouthfeel and viscosity was concerned. And I knew it would be a little thinner. It would be a little more carbonated, tingly kind of on the tongue. Um, but of course with that marshmallow kind of cutting the sweetness a little bit and um, you know, my friend Nathan that gave this to me or that, you know, bought it for me and transported it down here, you know, he liked it because he's not a sour guy and the marshmallow in, that's in this that sweetness kind of cuts through some of the tartness that you would normally get from a Berliner, which, albeit that assessment upsets me to a certain extent because you know what's better than just a nice tart, crisp Berliner Weiss, you know, especially on a hot summer day, and I just oh, I just can't imagine not appreciating such a thing. Um, but it's all about it's all about expectations, isn't it? And genius comes life. to this show with high expectations. Yes, I, I will say, and I've, I've I've been saying this for years, and I very truly believe it. Literally, the key to life, the key to a happy, satisfied life, is expectation management. Well, my expectations were low for the babysitter, and I was pleasantly surprised. But then you so set them too high for Killer Queen. You're right. You're right. You set them too right. high. I had no expectations for the movie we're about to discuss because I hadn't even heard of it. This next movie, you know, I, uh, oh, I, I don't know. I just I have a I have a soft spot for it. I think because of when I saw it and like where in my film journey I was when I saw it, um, and I think part of I think part of that comes from I don't I don't think anybody necessarily like put me on to it. I don't think anybody was like you need to see this. I think I just like stumbled upon it one day, and so that all of that together. I, very excited to talk about it. Uh, so when we return, we'll be talking about another film. And that's all I got.
right. We are indeed. We are, and it's time to re-moisten the glasses. I rinsed mine out, don't worry. Because um, <laughs> I'm still breaking in this new hybrid pint glass that I got. Um, so we're going back to Ingenious, as we had aforementioned, uh, because there's just too too many bangers uh, couldn't couldn't space it out, and this being the last of our Halloween episodes, our our horror spooky month episodes, we had to knock these out. Um, so for this one, again, shouts out to the boy Nate uh, came through. Thank you, Nate. Uh, and so what we've got here is we've got a Franken Froyo. This is one of my favorite. These Froyo milkshake IPAs that Ingenious does are some of my favorites. And this is a New England double milkshake IPA brought back to life with cereal marshmallows and strawberries. <laughs> it is shockingly delicious. I believe that it is an ale with lactose marshmallows and strawberries. Right. Yeah, and just having uh, looked at Frankenstein uh, earlier in the month, it's uh, it's exciting to be able to drink a beer that uh, is is a direct tribute to the character, even if it's through a cereal brand first. But yeah, I mean that, that's pretty nice, nice and hazy and pink. Yeah, I don't, don't want to pigeonhole myself into look at that beer guy's guy, but that is gorgeous. You do hey. seem like the look at that beer guy's guy. Hazy and pink. If I if I don't say look at the beer, guys, it's nothing worth looking at. Um, <laughs> it's this one though is hazy and pink. It, it looks like a slightly um, viscous, slightly non-opaque milkshake. It's gorgeous. Also, in relation to the beer and like where it came from, uh, Nathan texted me while we were in the middle of the babysitter episode, and he said, "Should I watch Leprechaun?" And I was like, well, have you seen the Babysitter movies? And he said no. And I was like, those are much better than Leprechaun. Uh, but but also, just randomly, I told him, I was like, oh, we're recording a Babysitter episode right now. And unprompted, he said, beer hurts my feelings. It's so tasty, but it makes my belly big. And I have never felt anything as hard as I felt that right now, especially given these heavy beers uh well they, they we do are, uh right that we are drinking right now these high caloric beers um i have been working out a little bit though not that that's yeah, they, podcast related but they do say that more pregnancies can be attributed to beer consumption than anything else any other single cause so they say that? well yeah beer make bellies big yeah um <laughs> it's just oh my God. Oh, i just got my first taste mm. you, know, you get your little beer baby um so yeah, we're we're uh, we're turning to a film as Carlos kind of teed us up and at the end of the second of the first half, get, getting us ready for the second half, that um, that Joe hadn't really seen before that I had, um, and I couldn't tell you exactly why I stumbled onto this, but this is a film from two thousand nine, The House of the Devil, uh, written, directed, and even edited by. Uh, Ty West? How do we say the, his first name? Ty or it's T? It's got to be Ty, right? T doesn't make any sense. Nobody's named T. Yeah, for some reason, I think when I first saw it, I would say T, but I, but I think Ty is a much better... Because it's spelled uh, T-I, just so everyone knows. It is, right. So he, not T-I the rapper, but T-I <laughs> the first name of a... Oh, hey, guys, guys I, don't, I don't know what we do here if we edit this out, but I watched the 1896 French silent film directed by George Melier. <laughs> oh, oh damn wow. easy mistake i'm just gonna i'm just gonna drink my i'm just gonna drink my frank and fro yo y'all go ahead nice all right that that was good joe um well anyhow so the, you know this film however i got turned on to it i remember it had something to do with 
this film recreates the 80s horror thing in a way that their film has since the 80s, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was intrigued. I went to see it. And sure enough, it is a film that, I mean, I think, Carlos, you suggested pairing this with The Babysitter, and there's some good reason to. It has that babysitter trope at its core. There is a young woman here, um, Samantha, who's uh, who takes a babysitting job, a very strange one, and ends up sort of in the classic situation where there are things going on in this house that she's unfamiliar with, and there's danger and there's threats and all that. But um, but there's a whole lot more to it than that too. I think that that that's worth talking about. But it is definitely a film that is trying to recreate the energy and vibe of those earlier films and not in a comic way, not in a way that's making fun of that, but paying homage to it. Yeah. I mean, it begins with a great eighties vibe and I guess we should do like a, a sentence or two of plot. Uh, it is a full lunar eclipse tonight. It's talked about in conversation. It's talked about on the news and there is an older married couple that are desperate to get a babysitter for the evening. They find our uh, our star, uh, the, the the babysitter, the girl who answers a babysitting ad that she finds on campus. And when she gets there, she learns that there's no child, but rather they need someone to watch their, they call her their able-bodied mother. We don't know where why it's so urgent, but it's very urgent. And they strike a deal, and she babysits this mother who we never see. She's upstairs. She's able-bodied. Leave her alone. For four hours, and now we've got a haunted house babysitter movie uh, that that has you're right, David, a great '80s vibe. It's and it's real people. It's not like oh my god, gag me with a spoon. We're in the '80s. We're all wearing neon. It's it's just it's as if a movie was shot in the '80s. Um, from the the filmmaking style, they even shot this thing in 16 millimeter on purpose to kind of get a grainy older look. And that part of it done really, really well, and just takes you. It takes you into the film, in my opinion. Yeah, I I agree with that. I mean, even up to like the like the title sequence, the title sequence is very '80s in like a very distinct way. Um, and so, like, right. But well the, done. It's not done, and like David said, it's not done in any kind of hokey way. It's just no. this awesome, awesome presentation. Yeah, no. I mean, it makes you like if you just showed this to somebody blindly and didn't say, "Hey, do you want to watch House of the Devil directed, written, and edited by Ty West from 2009?" They would just be like, "Oh, cool." Like, so when did this movie come out? Like 85, 86? Like they would just think that that was when it was made. Without, in fact, in fact, I can even give you a piece of evidence that backs up this assertion that you're making. Watching this with Erin, she had not seen it with me in the theater when I saw it back in 2009. I thought she had, and I put it on and we were watching it together. And we it got to when Greta Gerwig comes into the film yeah. and she said, wait, isn't this from the 80s? How would she, in a, no, 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 dear. This is 2009 recreating the 80s. Also, another thing that I love about this movie is and, you know, this could just be me looking back with rose-colored glasses, especially because I wasn't – in 2009 when this came out, I definitely was not, like, super tuned in with, like, indie cinema. And I didn't know who Ty West was. I didn't know who Joe Swanberg was. I had never heard of the Duplass brothers. Like, I was totally ignorant to all of that. I didn't find it till several years later. But 
to me, this just harkens back to an era of indie cinema that was still fairly recent in which Greta Gerwig was just like in everything. And it was like this like core group of kind of like creatives that were like friends with each other that were making all these amazing films for fucking next to nothing. And it just is just, it seems, it just, I don't know. It just makes me feel like such a like strange sense of nostalgia for something that like literally just happened to like this recent kind of indie moment where just like quality shit was being made at like a somewhat fervent pace. Like, you know, if, if there wasn't a Joe Swanberg project, there was a Noah Baumbach project and then, you know, Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig, uh, did like Mistress America. What was that? Like 2012 or 2012 or 14, something like that. And that was kind of more towards the tail end, but like just all this stuff happening. And when I was watching it, I was like, man, I wish Greta Gerwig was still in like everything all the time, <laughs> even even if just momentarily, like in this film, you know. I, I even if she gets her head completely blown off, blown off, and she sure does. That that is a that is a brutal and uh, and shocking death right. scene. That, so that goes so on there, yeah. when we meet the parent, the the I'm sorry, the the clients the babysitter the folks that are asking for a babysitter we're we're there's all evidence that this is very creepy uh, including the the performances including um once she takes the gig the idea that there is someone working on the outside to kill her friend that delivers her to the gig greta gerwig gets her head blown off really unexpectedly it comes out of nowhere nowhere and, Nothing um, really that violent has happened up until n- that point. No, in fact, you've only been relying on performance and set and uh, setting. I mean, it's and it's just kind of carrying you along. It's just this interesting narrative that 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 visually and cinematically hooks you in from the very beginning. You know, you're about to watch a horror movie, The House of the Devil. The title gives it away, but we haven't seen any horror. And then all of a sudden, she is dispatched with, and you know, there's some. You're not the babysitter. No, I'm not the babysitter. Kablamo. Now you know we're off to something more sinister. But then you've got that middle act of the film where she's accepted the gig. She's in the house alone, we believe, uh, with the, the elderly elderly lady upstairs that we don't, haven't seen yet. And she's just, what, roaming the house, listening to the music on her Walkman. She orders a pizza that the person that hires her, the, the man that hires her, suggests strongly that she orders a pizza from this place, this place, this place. Nothing really happens while tension is constantly building. Yeah, she's just like dancing around the house. Um, For 30 minutes. Yeah, just hanging. David's muted and he's talking, but he'll figure it out. Sorry, I thought I was unmuting myself. I, I love a lot about this film. Watching it again, I did feel like if there is a problem with this film, it's that it it lingers on that buildup after the omens leave, so that the creepy couple leaves. And then we get this sequence, it lasts nearly a half hour with just Samantha bopping around the house, looking around, breaking a bit. I mean, it, it takes a while to reveal itself at that moment. And I don't think it needs to take as long as it does. I don't remember feeling that way the first time I saw it, but watching it again, I felt like it made the film drag a little bit. 
Um, but there's some great stuff in there. I do like it when she has the headphones on and she's listening to the fix and she's dancing around and you get that kind of cool little cut to the basement and you're from the perspective of something you don't really know. And then she pops into the basement and you kind of hear that. There's, there's some great stuff in there. But that sequence right there, I feel like could have been shortened by 15, 20 minutes and gotten this down to like a nice 90 minute tight horror film. And it, and it would have benefited from it. That is so curious you say it because I loved the pace. I loved that half hour because it is interspersed a little bit with, you know, the, the dispatch of Greta Gerwig's character at the t- at the beginning of this 30 minutes. That's the, really the plot you know point. Um, I didn't mind it at all. I'm eager to watch it again. I mean, to me, I'm going to say right now, it is worth you seeing. Yeah, uh, House of the Devil. Oh, definitely. I'm, I'm curious to see on that second screening, David, if the strength of the film gets a downgrade, like it did with you. That's that. I'm curious with that. Yeah, I mean, I think once it gets to where it's going, it's great. I mean, the. It's a small criticism. It's just it felt like it dragged a little in that half hour section. But then after. the final act. But then yes, once we get to the actual satanic cult uh, doing their business, <laughs> that's I think very effectively done. It's shot really well. It's creepy. It's dark. You can tell not a ton of money on the screen, but really effective, uh, frightening imagery. I can't. Using I what can't. They have. I can't believe how much money they made this for. Like, right, it was close to a million, right? Yeah, yeah. it was like 900000 and maybe some right. change or whatever. Right. But just like some of the things that they're able to accomplish, like especially the fact that it's like, you know, an 80s style movie. I mean, every, like there's so much that has to be done like as far as like set decorating and costuming and, you know, making every environment that she's in feel like 1985 or whatever. Like that's not cheap to do. But you know, it's in that. Go on. It's in it's in that middle act, David, where the pizza arrives, in that tense scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, when the doorbell rings and the pizza's there, ah, we I, I got I got a good jump scare out of that. I didn't feel like it was too cheap, and she gets the pizza. The only crime. Your, the, your only problem is with cheap laughs, not cheap scares. Let Let's the, make. No, I have a big, I have, I have a big problem with, I have a big problem with cheap scares. Go back to our pet cemetery review. That was all about that movie. Well, that was just a bad movie. Yeah, that, that's just cheap, cheap. Not yeah. Cheap. There you go. Yeah. Good call. Good call. Um, that was just cheap king. The only crime of the movie is she's so scared when she gets the pizza that when she closes the door, locks it, puts her back to the door, and slides down and puts the pizza against her chest, flat. You know, like. In other words, the pizza is now 90 degrees from the plane that it's supposed to exist on. Then yeah. when she opens the box, the pizza is intact. That's the only, <laughs> that's the only rule breaking that I really saw. No. Is it, <laughs> I, um, you know, I, it's a good, I, I, hold on. I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. She, 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 she gets the pizza. She puts the pizza. To, she takes a bite of the pizza. One bite. The pizza's not right. And it's telegraphing something that's about to occur. The pizza is drugged, and that sends us into the third act. But um, well, and that's uh, uh, there's so out. there's tension. There's tension in that middle that, act, David. Yeah, that that no, the, the pizza part is good. It was it's more like the section between uh, Greta Gerwig being shot and the pizza arriving is what I'm talking about. That's the exact like once the pizza comes, I'm fine. Oh, she the, finds the, the photographs. Pizza, okay, go ahead. 
Yeah, but the pizza eating thing, I thought it was funny. I kind of remember this from even the first time I saw it. Like, Greta Gerwig early on eating pizza with her. There's another pizza eating scene where they're actually at a pizza place. And she's like, oh, this pizza's gross. You know, like, something's wrong with this pizza. And then later, she's eating the candy or whatever nuts out of the bowl in the living room. And she's kind of doing the same thing. It's like... Everybody in this movie, I mean, well, the girls who are eating, it's like everything they taste disgusting. So it's kind of funny that it foreshadows that eventually it's going to be actually poisoned pizza or or drugged pizza or whatever it is that that she's taking in. But they've set it up where, you know, every time a character's eating, they're kind of making a grimace and they're kind of, oh, what's wrong with this? This It was the 80s. They didn't know better. (laughs) All, All pizza was just subpar in the 80s. Yeah. Although I guess if all pizza was subpar in the 80s, they would think that it was good because it was the only thing they knew. Anyhow, it's either here or we're not going to get into that. Uh, you know, I am ve- I'm very much of two minds about this middle 30 minutes that we've discussed. Um, because on the one hand, I do think that it kind of drags a little bit and it could be tightened. You know, I'm all about economy of everything. You know, um, economy of words, economy of screen time, like, you know... We're, we're smart as audience members and all that kind of thing, but we don't need a ton of – we don't need things to drag on and on and on. But at the same time, movies in the 80s moved at a slower pace than they do now. Like there was more time spent building that kind of tension. You know, like, like – like perfect example, whenever we had Pink Hat on to talk about Halloween, he found Halloween to be boring, but it's because his brain is programmed – I mean, all of ours are for the most part, but program for 2020 pace and the MTV generation of like how to edit things. And he's how, got a Mick G brain. He's he's Mick G brain yeah. through and through, not smooth yeah. brain. Mick G brain. <laughs> that is the new term, <laughs> Mick G brain. Uh, and and I and like I understand because some because sometimes when I do you know sometimes if I'm watching Halloween and like I you know maybe really want to be watching. Uh, something newer and faster and, you know, more like, you know, breakneck pace kind of, you know, a kill every five or ten minutes or whatever. And I decide, no, I'm going to go classic. I'm going to put on Halloween. Then I will be kind of like, oh, man, maybe this wasn't what I wanted. Maybe this is a little slower than what I'm in the mood for. And so for the movie to kind of take that pace deliberately and have that scene of kind of just like general tomfoolery in the house by herself is so fitting of the time and only further makes Ty West's homage to 80s horror movies that much more effective and authentic. I hear what you're saying, and, and, I, and, I, and I think you're on to something. However, having just rewatched Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, I think both of those, being classic 80s horror films, were paced a little bit more efficiently. I mean, they're both around 90 minutes. They both have a number of characters getting killed. This is really yeah, fun. More really characters to kill off. That end up getting dispensed, right? Yeah. So, you know, again, I'm not going to, I don't want to belabor the point. It was a small uh, observation I made. I loved the film when it came out. I still love the film. I think it's a really well-made horror film. I, I will put it at the top of a list of films that people need to check out if they haven't already seen in this month of October. So, you know, it's 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 just a small criticism that I'm making about an otherwise fantastic film. And l- let me not forget to mention how much I love Tom Noonan in this film. As so good. Element. So yeah. creepy. 
He's he so is, fucking creepy. He is so creepy, and in a way that I just can't think of it any other. I mean, I guess there's a little bit of a Norman Bates quality to him in that there's like this kind of weird sheen of innocence, but but you know that it's really hiding this terribly sinister aspect to you know that that that's just kind of under the surface but he, but it's pulled off so differently and he's so mild-mannered and kind of soft talking i don't know it's super just, super soft in his voice yeah yeah it it, it it is a very chilling performance delivered by yeah tom noonan's one of those guys that everyone knows but no one knows the supporting character actors yeah. that, that that you see them in so many things, but you don't know their name. He definitely looked could. super familiar when I first saw him on screen, and I had to look him up, and I still didn't really recognize his name when I saw it. For me, he's the killer in Last Action Hero. Okay. I've but, never seen um, that. There's a lot to unpack that you guys have said. I mean, like, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, I think that we know that John Carpenter, when he made Halloween, and Sean Cunningham when he made Friday the 13th. I don't believe that they were trying to make canon. I believe that they were trying to each make a buck. But they created canon. Like in the great wide unknown of American horror of 70s into the early 80s. Because by 84... When and Carlos, you brought this up last week. When Craven did it in '84 with Nightmare on Elm Street, he knew ex he was trying to purposefully make an impact on a horror scene that had been created by these other people. So now, when you drop new horror, you've got all of this canon before you. So, what did Ty West, I think, do so effectively here? We've already mentioned it. He recreated an '80s film, but not the Nightmare on Elm Street. Going back even further to just simple story, but we haven't really talked about that third act. I and I'm and I really want to. The whole time we've been talking, I'm like, okay, yeah. at some point I cannot. The like, satanic ritual. Yeah, the, I cannot neglect this. The first time that I saw this movie, when she wakes up and it, you know you kind of are a little close on her at first, and it kind of you know zooms out a little bit. Also, love the zooms. I in this film i mean the use of zooms as opposed to dolly shots is just so distinct 80, that's 80s film it's making. so 80s and it's so distinct and it just makes it all the more like just it's a it's a it's a vibe you know and we're all about vibes on this podcast um but when that hit when you start to really see what's going on like i said when we started talking about this film nobody necessarily put me on to this film nobody was like you have to watch this the third act man it's fucking crazy you know no one said anything to me about it i just found it and i was like oh this looks cool i'm gonna watch this and i watched it and so not really having any idea or preconceptions or anything as to what was going to happen when that happens i'm like oh fuck like because up until that point you had one really big moment with greta gerwig literally getting her head blown off and other than that it's a fairly creepy and ominous film sure but like fairly docile and well, then no, once that starts seen, happening on. you're like oh fuck carlos you had seen a peek into the mother's room where there are dead people we're, we're to presume the actual owners of the home that they're in kind of mapped out in some kind of ritualistic fashion yeah you get a glimpse of it yeah that's true i, I just i don't know 
even but, with but that the deal. But the satanic display, you're right, Carlos, is on is in full display. The pentagram, she's tied up, there's bloodletting, yeah. there's goat heads. It just it, the first time I saw it, it just that that part I was I guess I mean I I guess part of it comes from having no expectation at all and not knowing anything about the film. But when it did happen, even though there was that scene, I was just like this is nuts. Like, what the fuck? It, like, it, we it just remind, ramped it up to 11. Yeah, it reminded me of Wicker Man in a way. Like, you know something nefarious is happening. You know something's going to happen. There, It's like a Hitchcockian approach of the anticipation of the suspense. But here it is. And now we're about to see something pretty sinister. Yeah, which we did, I would say. Well, and what that leads to, right? I mean, like the the eventual uh, conclusion of of the film, where you know she's she's sort of running away, trying to get out of the house, is chased down, and then ultimately decides to take her own life rather than be you know complicit in this ritual that that they're about to take part. Which is in. crazy. Which is crazy. It's, it, I remember that being the thing that undid me. Because, I mean, going yeah. into a film called House of the Devil, I, I kind of expected it was going to get where it was. But well, that sure. move, the Dave, move you, to her... Are you saying that the ritual took place afterwards? No. What? What do you mean? You said that she tried to end her own life in order to not... Well, because they were trying life. to put the spawn of Satan in her. Yeah, she would impregnate her. Her life would stop things, right? That, but yeah. that happened before she tried to kill herself. No, no, it did. And once, and once she realizes what's happening, if she killed herself, that would end the thing. She right. thought that, that would be the end. It right. would make them unsuccessful. Yes. Okay. Okay, yeah. I misunderstood what you she said. She wants to end the ritual. She wants to not right. be part. You know. Yeah. So I thought that was such a weird. Tw well, twist of a sort, because I just can't think of a film that ends with the character deciding to kill herself rather than subject herself to this evil that that the people are trying to perpetrate upon her. And then to come out of that with her waking up in the hospital bed and what's revealed at that point, beautiful. I mean, I, I remember that like last three or four minutes of the film feeling like, wow, like that, yeah. that was enough to sell me on like, you know, uh, Ty West, T West, whatever, you know. This guy had a brilliant idea, and and I think even if it just started with, I want to have this woman who's essentially go in a Rosemary's Baby situation, decide to end her own life to get out of that situation, and yet somehow they're able to rescue her, and she is then plagued with the, you know, having to be impregnated by this, you know, devil spawn, Wow, so, I don't know. It was it was brilliant. I just I love that ending that that uh, that he brings out there. I I hated the ending. I wish that they'd stopped at the suicide. I didn't like that tag that they put on it with the she is alive. The spawn of Satan still is inside of her, and she's in a coma and in a hospital. I thought that that was a cheat, but I feel like it's I sinister. I recommend this movie be seen. And I hope that it's finding its following. Because because like I said at the at the top, Netflix helps the babysitter find a following. This was released theatrically, uh, you know, uh, over a decade ago, and I had never heard of it until it was recommended by Carlos that we watch it today, and I know that I would have enjoyed this film so so much had I seen it back in the day. 
did, did we talk about how Tom Newman was in Anomalisa, one of our very first five episodes? No, we didn't. So this is our second time with Tom Noonan, but another important piece of his filmography that will tie us right back to the beer we've been drinking. He played Frankenstein's monster in Monster Squad. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, Dude, I I mentioned Monster Squad earlier, and now that you say it, you are 100% right. Hey, David, uh, Carlos, the Wolfman's got nards. I've never seen Monster Squad, so if that was a reference to the film, then it did not. It, it definitely me. is. Uh, it definitely is. Okay. Um, yeah. One thing, one thing I will say is that Vivian, Tom Noonan's wife, uh, had this film had a bigger budget and be, and had this film been made by a bigger name, should have been played by Kate Blanchett. I feel. Um, that was one thing that upon this was my. Well, I, I you think, know. I, I I don't disagree with that. She she would have been fantastic. However, Mary Warren of is an interesting figure herself, given that like her career started with Andy Warhol and she was in a ton of strange like sort of art house films well before. So she's kind okay. of being I, used. No, I mean I don't and, know anything and, about her. Yeah, that's so. So she's kind of got an interesting. Well, and then Dee Wallace as the landlady. Yeah, now, that's weird. If I have anything about. I think that's perfect to set up why Samantha is so uh, desperate to get the money and what would draw her into this. And I think that was all smart, but it was a little disappointing. And I remember it being disappointing in 2009 to see Dee Wallace show up and I'm like, Oh, she's got to come back. And she doesn't, she like, it's really just, she is the landlady who's just kind at the beginning. And that's, and that's it. it. Yeah. Um, and Okay, so yeah, I think I, not knowing anything about this woman who plays Vivian, yeah. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't have a lot of that subject. Can I suggest a recasting? Sure. If we if we were to make it now, I I think AJ Bowen, even though I know he's kind of like a, a you know indie horror guy ever since this, and maybe even a little before this, I really think um, is it Paul Walter Hauser? Is is that the guy who? Oh, the guy uh, from that who, terrible Clint Eastwood movie. Yeah, but he was in I, Tanya, which is great. Yeah, and, yeah he was good in that. And, uh, and he was in, oh, he's in Cobra Kai, the series there. Okay. I think he could have been the brother. a real AJ. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. 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 Uh, I agree with that, actually. Um, another thing that I, <laughs> that I noticed, and it's just because I guess maybe having seen, especially with uh, you know, the two babysitter movies being about satanic cults and having seen Hereditary, which has a Satanist element to it, uh, and things like this. Do you think we'll ever see a, uh, a movie about a satanic cult that just wears khakis? That just, like, dresses normal? Or three-piece corduroy suits. Or three-piece corduroy suits, uh, which I would not say is dressing normal necessarily. But, I mean, the satanists with the robes. I mean, it is ridiculous. I mean, the, have what is with the robes? I mean, so also nudist. Right? Or, or nudists. Uh, Robes are nudists, but we can't just get, you know, you know, you can't just get a nice pair of khaki shorts and like a Nike polo and some and some no. monarchs on like they just got off no. the links. You know, like if you're gonna not take, getting if you're, it. If you're gonna take the trouble to, to craft the table with the pentagram design and the ro- and the rope, you know, cleats that you would need to tie a girl down to it. Also you might you might as well dress up in your robes. I just I just saw this movie um on Shudder the other day called Satanic Panic, which um 
has a girl in it from Happy Death Day and also has Rebecca Romaine in it. Um, and it has a really great uh, satanic orgy scene that is soundtracked by a Chelsea Wolf song, which was like from the His Spun album, which was incredible. Um, but again, like, you know, they're these upper, not even middle class, just upper class, like insanely rich people that are in this satanic cult. And for the most part, they're just kind of like dressed like whatever, like, you know, nice. And But then once the actual satanic shit happens, they're all wearing robes or they're all in the weird like BDSM kind of garb or something. Uh, you know, what you're, what you're looking for, you're like, when is the Protestant version of the satanic church going to come about, right? When I, are just, we gonna have I just think that there's so much – when it, that can wear regular street clothes. I my My thing more so is – that when it comes to these satanic rituals that are depicted in these films, there is just so much effort put into the actual ritualizing of itself. Like in The Babysitter Killer Queen, it took time to make those weird scarecrow things and fucking set up this whole situation on Pirate's Cove and stage this, all this mise-en-scene. And so you're telling me that these Satanists have the time in one night to create this entire elaborate spectacle as far as like, set, no. like setting and actual props are concerned and, no, also, were... and also have the time to completely like elaborately costume themselves as well? Like it's not happening. Yes. No, no, Carlos, it was all about the lunar eclipse the lunar eclipse was the thing so they had ramped up to this one magical evening they, they were probably working on that for months yes of course for that day uh, can i make a casting uh, suggestion sure so, uh, samantha in this film the, pro the protagonist is played by jocelyn donahue mm -hmm. bella thorne no oh, <laughs> Nice, nice. Hated that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, we all think you should see. I hate it when we all agree. The House of the Devil. Oh come on, we we got to agree on something every well, once in a while. This yeah, th this is one to agree on. This is a this is a well made little film that I am, didn't probably get as much love as it should have originally, and that anybody who gets to see it now, it's it's a good thing. Let, let's get the word out on it. Oh now, what about this Frank and Froyo? And again, ingenious. Clearly on this show, it is the number one brewery that we've ever done. I think we got another hit on our hands. I mean, I, I'm enjoying it. I'm, it's got it's got the the markings of the Froyos we've had in the past. I know we had at least one other Froyo on, on the show. Um, this is something they like to do. Oh, we... Keep going. And uh, it, it's just, I don't know, it's all there. I mean, it does have enough of that ipa character there's a there's a hoppy quality there but it's nicely balanced with the strawberry flavor the marshmallow it's i'm i'm digging it and as as we said when we poured it in the glass it's an impressive pour yeah it's so good i mean it's so good like what <laughs> what else is there to say other than it is fucking delicious i mean i think if i had any criticism of it it's that I've had a strawberry Froyo IPA from Ingenious before, you know, milkshake IPA from Ingenious before that wasn't this Franken Froyo one. And so it's virtually identical, uh, not really a ton of difference, but that strawberry Froyo also has like some vanilla in it. And so the vanilla and then the marshmallows in this one, I mean, they're very similar flavors, so they're obviously going to come out pretty similar um 
that would be my only complaint is that this is basically a repackaging of a beer that they already make. Um, that being said, the beer that they already make is fucking amazing, and I love it, and <laughs> I wish that I could just have it all the time. Uh, so I, you know, aside from that, I mean, if that's something you want to get hung up on, then sure, like by all means, get hung up on it. But I'm not going to because I am loving this. It is delicious. It has a great mouthfeel, great flavor. Love a milkshake IPA. And this is a proper milkshake IPA, too. With the exception of David's hatred of The Shining and Carlos's love of all things The Rock, I trust you guys' opinions very much. So I'm going to just simply say that I'm having a flavor problem with this beer. But I trust that it is my problem and not something wrong with the beer. Uh, there's something cutting through the middle of this, and I, I love to use all the pretentious terms, but the idea that it, <laughs> it starts in your nose and then on your tongue and then the mouthfeel, and then there's something in the middle of this that is hitting me with a piece of metal over my taste buds that I cannot explain to you. You know, some, you know, some people think that cilantro tastes like soap and I'm not one of those people. So I can't understand their point of view. I don't think I can make you understand what my problem is with this, but I had a big enjoyment problem with this and it makes me sad that both of you enjoyed it so much. I, I also don't taste cilantro as soap, but I do taste cilantro as being bad and it is bad. And it's well, not now, because I have the soap gene. I just want to get that out there. I just want to make my anti-cilantro How do you eat beans? Stance. How do you eat pico de gallo? I, I just okay. want to make my anti-cilantro stance firm. I want to make it public before election day comes around so that everybody knows when they vote, when they write me in for president, that I'm going to be very anti-cilantro and my, uh, you know, my administration will be very anti-cilantro. Two things. Number one, I wrote in Kanye as president, not vice president. And number two, if David, if we're at a party at Carlos's house and he made the guacamole, remind me that I don't want it. I put, I, I do, I do put, and I, I am kicking myself for having just said cilantro a bunch of times because it's ridiculous. I do put cilantro in my guacamole when I make it. And I, it, it has its place, or guacamole, in, in, my, in my pico de gallo. Uh, it has its place and its time as, like, a supporting member of the cast. Like, it's some, it, is a, it is an herb that should get at max, like, maybe five minutes of screen time. It really, it should, it shouldn't get any more than that. Like, okay, all right, we're off. We're way. It makes no sense as a garnish. (laughs) It is absolutely. David, get us back on target. This is. I don't know that I can. That's (laughs) it. How the fuck did we get on that? But uh, yeah, no, I, I have nothing to add. I, I like cilantro. So. Beer and movie uh, listeners, you're welcome. I know you've been waiting right. for a brave man to take this I, stance. I enjoyed October so much, y'all. Best month. I enjoyed the idea that we said, let's do horror, and then we actually did it. it this was so much fun. And again, The Babysitter was the perfect film to pick for new releases. It was so, it was great. Good, good month. And, I mean, it's clear that we loved the all-horror October because this is – maybe once I edit it down, at best, will be an hour and a half. But as we stand right now, we're, like, well into, like, almost an hour 40. Well, let's wrap it up then. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sad to see it end, so <laughs> I don't necessarily want to do that, but I will if that's, that's what you want, Joe. We got to do it. 
All right. Well, this concludes October on uh, Beer and a Movie, our all-horror month. We've talked about eight mostly outstanding horror films. Actually, nine. Not nine. Yes, Because we're going to include that's Killer Queen. Yeah. Um, I don't think – there wasn't one that I – did I say anything negative about any of them? No, I think you liked oh, them all. I think I liked them all. Um, well – Tell us what you think about uh, The Babysitter and how uh, The Babysitter Killer Queen is uh, The Babysitter franchise's Godfather 2 slash Terminator 2. You you did. I think we all didn't like Fulci for fake. or oh, so that, that That's a documentary, it, though. It doesn't count. That is one of them. Yeah, all right. It doesn't count. Tell us what no, you No, thought. no, no. Car- Carlos liked that movie very, very much. He was the one that... That that champion that one. I honestly okay. don't. I don't remember. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, shit. <laughs> um, so yeah, tell us what you thought about the Babysitter franchise as it exists now. Do you want to see a third one? Uh, what did they? Where did they even go from the second one? Honestly, that's what I want to know. Right. That's the reason I want to see a third one is to see what on earth they're going to do next. Uh, have you seen House of the Devil? If not, what the fuck are you doing? You need to watch that. Uh, let us know. Twitter at Beer Movie Show. Instagram at Beer and Movie. Facebook.com slash Beer and Movie TX. Beer and Movie Podcast.com is where you can find a link to listen to all of our past episodes. That means that if you haven't been listening this month, there are six other horror films that we discuss that you should be tuning into. Uh, and then, you know, over 100 more episodes before that. Um, also check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash brand new podcast, uh, for $5 a month, you can get a free bonus episode every single week. You can donate less than that if you would like, but you won't get those bonus episodes. You can also donate more if you like, who am I to stop you? It's a free country. Um, and also rate and review us on Apple podcasts. Uh, we know you're going to give us a five star rating, but please leave a written review and subscribe so that you will stay up to date on all of the new episodes. The day that they drop, you'll be the first of your friends to say hey did you hear about what they talked about on beer in a movie this week did you hear about it uh and all your be like, david, no david, i don't subscribe david did david didn't like a movie david didn't like so oh my god oh my god uh we're also on stitcher and spotify and all that kind of good shit so you know find us there if that's what you like i personally am a stitcher user so i'm glad that we are there it makes me feel good even though i don't listen to the podcast because i'm the one that edits that edits it so i listen to it before it actually comes out uh it's neither here nor there um i have had a great time and i am so happy honestly i am over the moon that we were able to get these ingenious beers that are so perfectly themed for our halloween uh series that we've been doing in time to close out the month proper really really brings me joy it's a big flex it is a big uh, flex we don't buy beer like normal people do we flex <laughs> with our beer selection. That's right. Uh, and we've already started talking about November, so I'm excited to talk about oh, some. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll come out and say it. Then an episode, the first episode of November is going to be the second Borat movie. Uh, definitely something that's in the headlines right now. Trump is all nice. fucking whatever about it because he's a little bitch. Um, and actually, by the time that episode comes, that episode will come out the day after Election Day. So, whew. My God, uh, <laughs> we'll see what the fuck happens with that. They we just they just got their election day, but yes, it will come out after. It will, yeah. We will record the day before election day. It'll come out the day after. They already got their Supreme Court fucking pick through because they're a bunch of fucking cunts. Um, but 
We'll see what happens with that. I don't know. I'm David knows how I feel about this. I'm a, I'm a, I'm I'm of a much darker point of view than he. he is. Uh, and Joe lies somewhere in between. I feel, but anyway, uh, this has been another episode of Beer in a Movie. Until next time. Things get messy when you make a deal with the devil. Thank you.